I just over the years have had an increasing appreciation for how absolutely critical it is to make sure that you have the right talent in companies to make them thrive. If we can actually get intelligence about people from people, convert that to data, we can help make hiring better. The people that know you are two times better at assessing a job fit for you than you are for yourself. Evangelizing the category, it's hard. We all know it's hard and we probably all have read the same, you know, seven how-tos. One of the things that was so amazing to us was this whole idea of the quality of a hire and how are companies actually measuring the quality of the hires they make and who owns that KPI in an organization. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm excited to welcome Mike Fitzsimmons, co-founder and CEO of Crosscheck. This episode's part of our early stage series. As you know, we typically interview founders and company leaders of more mature growth companies on Founder Real Talk, but many of our listeners are running and working at earlier stage startups and have asked that we highlight some younger companies to examine the issues and challenges these businesses uniquely face. I'm excited to do that today with Mike. Crosschecks pioneered a new category of talent acquisition called human intelligence hiring that harnesses the power of people to help companies better source, match, and retain the best talent. The company's cloud-based SaaS solutions were built with a talent-first approach that prioritizes trust and transparency, minimizes bias, and protects privacy. At GGV, we feel really lucky to have led Mike's seed round. He's building a really exciting company, and I'm looking forward to digging into the story with him today. Mike, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks, Glenn. Really happy to be here. Awesome. You know, first off, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey Crosscheck's not your first rodeo. You don't come from an HR talent background, however. So be curious to understand what in your background led you to start this company and, and how's Crosscheck been different from that regard than other companies you, you've started in the past? Yeah, no, I, I do think it's an interesting question in terms of not coming from an HR and talent background. I think arguably we're, we all come from a talent background. <laughs> uh, and I think that's part of why I started I started the company. In my case, a lack of talent background. <laughs> or, or a lack of talent background. No, but for sure, that, that was the inspiration to the thing, is I think that I just, over the years, have had an increasing appreciation for how absolutely critical it is to make sure that you have the right talent in companies to make them thrive. And over the course of my journey and the early stage companies that I'd been associated with or started, that opportunity sort of self-identified more and more and more and more. And I sort of said, I got to go, I got to go help fix this problem. And this problem is companies lacking the proper tools to ensure that they're getting the best talent into their organizations to help them win. So although, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't sort of selling into the HR market for the last 10, 15, 20 years, I for sure was living the reality of how critical talent is to winning. Yeah. And I know you started and built a company prior to Crosscheck and I'd be curious to ask you about the inspiration. What what experience at that company led you to realize, like, hey, talent is super important, and I got to help fix this problem for entrepreneurs going forward? 
Yeah, you know, it's one of those things you know until you don't know. And it's obvious, right, that people matter and that that's the key to, to success. I personally had a couple of the wrong side experiences. So I made a couple of hires. This company, the company I was running was planning for an IPO and was trying to do some big things. And we made a couple of really key executive hires in the latter stages of our journey that cost us dearly in a whole bunch of ways. And so, and I think that was the piece where the light bulb moment went off. And I said, gosh, I just didn't have the tools to see this coming. You know, I was trying in good faith. In this case, we were using retained searches and spending a bunch of dough on, you know, trying to get great quality talent in, but we still missed. Mm. And so, you know, that was the thing where the light bulb moment was of, gosh, this, this just, this just has to be better and can be made better and can be fixed. You know, I've heard you say that the two things that matter most in a startup are TAM and team. Going to the TAM, the available market question, what made you think, you know, before you decided to start CrossCheck that there was a big enough market here for you to spend your time on it full time? You know, when you have that little bug in spreadsheets when the number's too big to fit in the cell <laughs> <laughs> and it does that squirrely thing with the plus and the whatever, and you're like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. Yeah. It was a little bit of one of those. No matter how I sliced and diced it, I looked at it a couple of different directions. One was sort of from the problem direction of what percentage of hires are deemed as mishires. You know, 40% of hires don't make it through a year. The cost of a mishire is X. Multiply that by the number of people employed just in the US alone, and you get a number that's too big for that spreadsheet cell, right? And then I also looked at it sort of from a just a, a market opportunity of what who wouldn't want this, big or small. And I just couldn't get away from the fact that this thing is literally, right, can help, you know, an organization of one or an organization of a million, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's just the reality. And that's the piece that, that I just, I felt like that box was checked, you know, that it was just a big enough market that was worthy of, you know, the next, whatever it is, seven to 10 years of my life. Yep. That's great. Cool. Well, let's go a little deeper into what you guys do. Your category, as I mentioned, is human intelligence hiring. That's a new concept, you know, not one that people have probably heard about from other companies before. So maybe you could break it down for us a little bit. Yeah. And to simplify it, you know, we are trying to create a category. We're taking a big picture approach to this thing. And we all know how challenging it can be to create a category. And the human intelligence hiring category, we just think needs to be built. And I think it's predicated on a pretty simple notion that is, if we can actually get intelligence about people from people, convert that to data, we can help make hiring better. And frankly, we believe we can create a new currency by which hiring decisions are made. When I zoom out and I think about this in a really simplistic fashion, I I love the analogy of you get two resumes applying for a job, right? And they look really, really similar. They maybe went to the same university. They've worked at a similar couple of companies. They have the same six, seven years of experience. And, And truly, how do you differentiate those folks, right? Truly, truly, when you ask those really hard questions of how do you actually determine whether they're going to be right for my organization and help me win. I think that's what we're trying to solve for. And we're trying to solve for it by interjecting this new layer of intelligence, which we call human intelligence, into that process, which is really predicated on this idea of how do you get human insights from people that know those candidates, that have worked with those candidates, that understand their work styles, their skills, what they're like to go to battle with, all that good stuff, and how do you convert that to data and help ultimately make a good hiring decision. So there's a great study I read early on from UC Davis where they analyzed the people that know you are two times better at assessing a job fit for you than you are for yourself. It's fascinating. That makes a lot of sense to me, but it's also scary. (laughs) It's scary, right? But it's real. And it's why we have this problem. It's why 40% of people don't make it a year in their new job. It's a real thing. 
It's an undeniable real thing. So that's what this human intelligence concept is, is let's, let's kind of create a new currency for making hiring decisions by leveraging, you know, real human insights and data versus the resumes side by side and sort of, gosh, which one of these do I choose? You know, as, as an investor, when you gave me the pitch, what I leaned on was the countless number of times I've interviewed execs for companies that I'm on boards of, you know, trying to help the founder or leader CEO make a decision on should I hire person A or person B, or do you think person C is right for the job? And, you know, it's, it's always difficult. And I think I've gotten about as good as I can get. And I think my batting average is still pretty low. And I'm just thinking about if like there was this magic dossier that came along with every person that had all reflections codified in a way that was digestible from everybody with whom they've ever worked. And I could not only take that, but then compare that dossier to other people in a comprehensive way, boy, that would be powerful. And so if that's what human intelligence hiring is all about, I think you guys are really onto something. But like you said, it's a new category. And I'm curious to go into what being in a new category has meant for you. This is a challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs face early on. Um, they see an opportunity and the market may be brand new. And so what does that mean when, you, when you're trying to create a category? I presume when you go and talk to a customer, like they don't have a budget line item for human intelligence hiring, right? So you've got you've to sell yourself. You've got to sell the company. You've got to sell the idea and the, the fact that this is a legitimate market, something to spend money on. Curious how, how that's impacted you as a leader of an early stage company. Yeah, I think, I think the first step is make sure you understand the need for the category you're creating, right? We can all try to create categories for things that will never have any real relevance. And for yeah. us, that journey, which is kind of interesting, like you were bringing up the challenge you've had in your own screening processes. But for us, the journey of in this category creation was really understanding that it's a two-sided equation here. There's a company side of this equation, but there's also a candidate side of this equation. And I bring that up just because in order to effectively you know, build the category, you actually have to understand the point of view of all the constituents, right, involved. Yep. And that has to become part of the definition of what you're solving for ultimately. So I think that was the first piece I would say is just getting, gosh, hyper, hyper aware the complexity of this challenge and also what the constituents on both sides of the equation really need. And that, you know, frankly, for us, that's been part of the evolution. I, I will tell you, when we started the, the company, it was really coming from the position of more of a screen out solution. Let's just keep bad guys out of organizations. Yep. It is a 180 from that today. And frankly, if we had tried to create the category as a screen out solution, we would have failed miserably. But I think because we have a better worldview of the needs of both candidates and companies, I, I really think this is more about solving the mishire problem for both sides of the equation. And I think that's a real mission and it's a real big thing. And I think it will help companies and individuals just as we know, individuals that end up in the wrong job and have to leave after nine months, you know, it's not great for them either, right? So anyway, I think, I think that whole thing for us in terms of just make sure you understand the problem you're solving for all of the constituents involved as you define your new category is a real thing. Evangelizing the category, it's hard. We all know it's hard, and we probably all have read the same seven how-tos as it relates to what you go into to create awareness and evangelize and all that good stuff. And we're trying our best to do a lot of those things. And we're also trying to, you know, find hacks where we can, right, mm -hmm. uh, on a team of 15 people and just do the best we can. What we have going for us, though, and it's an interesting a book that you gave to me, but what we have going for us is that we know that customers love this product. We know mm -hmm. we have excessively high NPS ratings, excessively high customer reviews. And so, 
once you know that, it kind of helps maintain your conviction that if I know that I just need to get more people to use it, right? And if I can get more people to use it, as your your book, the score will take care of itself. I, yeah. I believe that, right? And so that also feeds in a little bit to like how we're doing going through the evangelization process and how we're kind of grinding through the COVID process. And it's like, look, we have a product that we know people love. Let's just get it people to use it. If the mission is that simple, I think it does help to contain it. And then good things will happen the more people that are using it. And that's where the virality kicks in, I think. And the category creation, really, really the magic starts to happen. That's great. And I'll just hit pause. And, you know, I ask a lot of people on the podcast for a favorite book that they recommend to other founders. But you're right. I did give you that as a holiday gift last year. This is a book I'll just say is one of my favorites to give to founders. It's called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And it's an old book that basically Bill Walsh, the former 49ers head coach, who was probably until Bill Belichick considered the greatest NFL coach of all time, wrote. And it's not a well-written book in that it, you know, it's sort of more of a, a series of anecdotes, but it's really, there's so much wisdom in there about leadership about how to get the most out of people, about how to change and manage culture that I just think it covers a lot of great areas that all founders really need to consider as they start companies and help to, and start building teams out. But anyway, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about on the team side, right? You joined forces with Pete Gettner, who I've actually known longer than you as your co-founder. I'm curious like what the process was like, how you know Pete, why you decided to start a company with him, you know, how you ensured you guys had shared vision and how you also ensured that you kind of split tasks up in a way that made, made for one plus one equaling more than, more than two. Yeah. And this is a delicate thing with your co-founder, right? And if you get it wrong, it can be a rough ride. And if you get it right, good gracious, it can be the best. I hadn't had a co-founder before, right? So that was one thing for me, right? I had started companies and I was, frankly, to some extent, always regretted not having having a co-founder earlier in the process, just as a, for whatever it's worth. That said, with Pete, it was interesting. Pete actually reached out to me after we exited two companies ago, we were working together. Pete was an investor with Worldview Ventures and was on my board. So we got to know each other really well during that journey. I don't know, probably nine months after that company was sold. He reached out to me, we went and had lunch, and he, he was pitching me on starting an angel fund with him. Mm. In addition to being a successful entrepreneur himself, he took his first company public called Digital Think. Yep, that's where I first met him. Okay, great. Yeah. And then he was a VC, and then he was actually a great angel investor. Pete was coming off of a, a trade on STEM centrics, which I think he got in like the B round and, you know, was, was flush coming out of that. So he was all excited about starting a seed round and wanted me to go do that with him. So I remember the lunch like it was yesterday. We sat down and he said, hey, let's go do this. And I'm like, you know, we still got this problem to solve. And I kind of repitched him on the shared experience that we had had on the mishires that we had made. And as these things go, one thing leads to the next. And before you know it, you're starting a company together. So that's how we got going. I think the question about complementary skills, that was just easy from the jump, frankly. You know, Pete is a product guy, wants to be a product guy. He doesn't want anything to do, frankly, with the outward facing pieces of the business. And he's a really good product guy. He'll kill me for saying this, but I remember him saying to me, he's like, I really am Steve Jobs. He's like, I really am. <laughs> I'm going to use that on him next time I see him. You absolutely should. And I didn't know because I hadn't actually built a product with him. But if you actually look at our product, he's certainly in the same ilk. He's a, just an unbelievable product guy. He really, truly is. Yeah, your product really sings. That's cool. So maybe this leads to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is when you're an early stage company and you're starting a category, for you guys, when I look at CrossCheck, you've done a great job 
accumulating a really nice long list of early customers. But that is hard. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs break their pick on really trying to get their first couple of customers sold and off the ground because, you know, you don't have any references. Nobody's ever heard of you. If you're starting a new category, it's even doubly hard because there's no budget. How did you guys get over that hump when, you know, you didn't have anybody to point to? It says like, hey, come along on this journey with us as a customer. We got 10 others over here you can talk to. Before you have that, how do you get somebody over that hump? You know, we were we were lucky in that not to not to continue tooting Pete's horn because I think we already maximized the number of toots allowed. But I will tell you, he had built or we had built a disproportionately good product early, right? I think, it, it, and so that gave me great confidence that I still had to go beg and I still had to leverage my network, all the normal stuff. But I could do that with confidence. I could do that with it wasn't a dare to dream ask and it wasn't a I didn't feel like it was a high-risk ask of the people that, frankly, you're calling favors from to get those first right three to five logos live, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that helped. I can't say enough how helpful that was, and I think also we spent over a year developing this thing before we took it to anybody, right? So I think that also, it wasn't, again, it wasn't one of those those situations where we kind of rushed it to market before it was ready. So I think all of those things were very were very helpful. I mean, the grind of that, though, is it's fortunately we had built we've all built professional networks and we could kind of start to get to the right decision makers at some of these, you know, from our networks and get them to take a chance on us. You know, it's really unfortunately nothing, no more magic than that. But I will I will go back to that point that as you're doing that and you're looking for those favors, if you don't have a product you can stand behind early, it's it's even harder to do that. And did you guys use any of these early what became customers as kind of like design partners as you were building out what you thought people wanted? Or did you kind of lock yourself in a closet and try to build what you thought people would want before getting getting advice from folks? You know, I <laughs> I want to I want to give you an honest answer to this because well, we're already invested, so it's too late for me to pull out. Anyway. If you have Steve Jobs as your partner, <laughs> just let him go. Just let them go. I think that, look, that is, I know we prefer to have endless amounts of customer feedback and data and whatnot. He actually, similar with the competitive products that were out there, folks playing around the edges, it's really is part of his ethos, which is just kind of, we're going to create a new category here and we're going to create the tool that we think companies will use. And, and I, so I think we probably didn't spend enough, I mean, I don't know, enough, but but as much time proportionally on that side of the equation. For sure, once we got those handful of customers going, God, we react quickly and God, we listen well, a hundred percent, right? That is absolutely core in everything that we do and take that feedback in real time and evolve and all that good stuff. But I think in the initial phase, we kind of took a, a bit of a different angle, which was, let's just go build what we think the world needs because we've cool. both run, run enough companies and been around enough companies and have enough perspective that, that we, we think we'll get, we'll get right enough. All right. That's refreshingly honest. Let's talk a little bit about what fundraising was like. Obviously, we're super excited that the process ended with with us getting to lead your seed. But, you know, curious, you know, how you guys thought about it from your side. And obviously, there's some other investors involved. So you guys thought about building a syndicate. Uh, just walk us through what the process was like to raise raise your first rounds of capital and, and how you thought about the process and how you think about now, you know, the, the fact that you've got multiple investors. What, why'd you do that? And what are the pluses? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't personally been out in the early stage fundraising game for a long time, right? Just in my career. And I'm not going to lie to you. I felt old. (laughs) 
as a founder, relatively speaking. And, and it just it was bringing back memories to 20 years prior in my career that I couldn't ever get away from. But look, we were very fortunate. We were very blessed. We, as you know, we had a ton of interest in our early rounds. We psyched to have met you. I mean, we, we just fell in love not to with you and the firm, right? We really did. And we just, you guys just, everything felt right about GGV as a partner. And as you know, Bessemer had sort of invested in our pre-seed round and, and they also also came in. We just felt like it was a really, really powerful, strong syndicate. I think we, we sort of mentally said, look, we've got two of the top five arguable firms in the Valley, especially around this space and two just unbelievable partners that are supporting this vision. So that was a relatively easy decision to make in the grand scheme of things. And we felt really blessed that we had the options that we had at that time. I think that what's happened since then was a little atypical. As you know, we had some interest from a large strategic investor about two months after we invested that invested. We then had another large strategic investor make an investment. And then we had a couple of other financials come along and and make an investment. So this syndicate for a company of our size, it's raised six and a half million bucks. And we've got GGV and Bessemer and Tiger Global and then strategics like SAP and Slack in the company is a little, I think is a little atypical. And so we're thankful for it. We feel blessed. We feel like it's a great, great group. I will tell you though, I feel it's a little bit like when the kid drives off to college, we've got to go deliver. And it's just, it, it, we have no excuses. We have got no capital excuses. We've got relatively speaking for what our key next milestones are and just an awesome group that we we don't want to let down. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure, Mike. No pressure, but it's real. And we are just really proud of the guys that are are the team that is around the table. And that has been a a different type of journey for me, for sure. I'll tell you a couple other things, just anecdotes. You know, this would have been a series A in my prior life, you know, raising six and a half million bucks in a seed round. It is just interesting to see how the world has shifted in that regard, you know, and how access to capital has shifted. It's also been cool to see how these strategics are getting more active early it's also interesting to see how large funds like Tiger Global are getting active in seed rounds, right? There's some just nuance to all of that that is indicative, I think, of a changing and evolving venture landscape. And, you know, we're, I think we're just, again, we're just happy to have got the, the folks around the table that we have. Cool. Okay. You get hit by COVID-19 like everybody else, but in particular, your business is about helping companies hire people more effectively. And obviously, a lot of companies, at least on the early, the early part of the pandemic, not only hit the pause button on hiring, but probably a lot of companies downsize somewhat. Maybe we're returning to a little bit more of a healthy environment where people are starting to hire again, and hopefully that'll continue. But curious, you know, how you kind of shouldered through that tough time there, because clearly when your solution is oriented toward helping companies grow and they're not thinking about growing, that could be tough. Yeah. And look, there, there was, and you guys were super helpful in helping us navigate too. I think the resources, frankly, that GGV brought to the table for their portfolio companies were, were awesome, especially in those early days, right? When I'm kind of getting everybody together to help us all navigate. Just some data for you. The comp numbers on candidate activity through Crosscheck dropped off about 45% hmm. at the low point during the pandemic, or I think we're still in the pandemic, I guess, and who knows what the heck happens next. But in the last six months, I should say, as of a couple of weeks ago, those comps became positive for the first time. And so we've been trending in the right direction. And when you say comps, we're not talking compensation, you're talking comparables. So um, comparables, the same yeah. to same hiring volume. Okay. So your customer base is now up you know, the, the same customers that you started with pre COVID are now actually hiring more people are running more people through the system than they were pre-COVID? Correct. That's great to hear. 
we have companies, and this is public information, that were companies like Glassdoor or great companies and Eventbrite that just got hammered by this thing, right? And these are companies that had were planning to hire, say, a thousand people, and then overnight were letting go of a thousand people, right? That was real, and that was absolutely happening in in our world. So. So we grinded through that, and, and good to see that you're starting to see some resurgence there. I think the other thing that's helpful for us is we've identified other growth opportunities. So we got into healthcare, which has been a great growth category mm-hmm. for us. The tech companies that we also found, the growth tech companies, so you know three of the top six cloud SaaS 100s now have active accounts on CrossCheck, you know, HashiCorp, Procore, and Snowflake, right? So those guys are all growing. There's good activity happening from that segment. Sitting on the board of HashiCorp, I can validate they're growing. <laughs> Glad you guys have gotten them as a customer. That's great. We're excited too. But in terms of the the existing customer base, that was the piece where I, I don't know if I how, how good a job I did managing that. I did the best I could. And you know, we went out to a lot of those customers. We allowed them to pause billing. We, we mm. just did everything we needed to do to try and help them protect their own businesses. And did that pause billing tactic work for you? Like, have any of those guys come back? Yeah, so call it 15% of our customer base took advantage of that program. And what we did is we offered them to pause billing for whatever period of time, but then retroactively increase the length of their contract based upon how long they paused the billing for, right? And so that we felt like that was a fair and appropriate way to attack the issue. And so about 15% of our customers elected to take advantage of that, and half of them are off of that system completely. So we still have, call it, you know, 7% of our customers are are in that zone still. Half of them are off that system, meaning, and have they come back or have they dropped? They come back. They came back. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So that, that really did work. It did. And, and I was impressed, too, that companies didn't take advantage of it, that didn't need it. You know, it was really one of the, and that's how we approached it. We approached it as a trust thing. We said, look, we're trusting you. And if you guys need support, you need to, you know, and so I think it did build some goodwill for us as well for the long haul. But, you know, when you're in the zone on that, you're sitting here staring down that pipe saying, oh my goodness, if, if, <laughs> you know, if I lose half my customers <laughs> in the next 90 days, this is going to be a hard mountain to climb back up. Yeah. Cool. Another thing I wanted to ask you and uh, Pete have built an engineering team and product team down in Argentina. And I'm curious, like how that came to be, how you manage across geo like that. And, um, whether that's been, you view that as like a, an advantage in a time period like COVID where everybody's distributed that helped build some muscle for you guys or disadvantage because of all the obvious reasons why it might be like language and time zone and stuff. Yeah. So we got really lucky on this. And this was actually, frankly, part of when Pete and I got together to launch this thing that that was a major catalyst for us to get it going. So Pete had a relationship with a group of developers down in in Buenos Aires that he had built over the years. He had worked on a mobile product with his team and and a former company that he was associated with. So he knew these, these guys well. He kind of made a couple calls and said, hey, get the band back together and we're going to go build this killer new SaaS product. And so these weren't blind hires. They were folks that we had prior working experience with. These weren't kind of contractors that we found from Upwork kind of thing, right? These were actually bona fide, great developers that we we had worked with in the past. So that was the starting point. And we were comfortable specifically with Argentina. First of all, it's a super cost-effective market, right? I mean, we're paying these guys probably 35 cents on the dollar for a U.S. developer. Mm. The time zone is pretty close, right? Yeah. We can absolutely manage through the time zone. The talent is great. I mean, I, I, I will tell you, like, they're good. You're not compromising on talent. Maybe for certain more intense data, AI, machine learning type of roles, maybe that, that, that stuff you got to do local. 
and the language barriers, you know, we've gotten through it. We've, we invest in helping them learn. We, we also do the same, but that, that really hasn't proven to be a major barrier. So we're all in on it. I will tell you, Glenn, it's certainly, I reflect on it, especially during the pandemic and all the job loss in the U.S. And I say to myself, God, am I doing the right thing, right? Uh, should I actually be localizing some of these? <laughs> so there is, you know, that's a human thing to have to think about, yep. right? But that said, we are, as a business decision, it's been the, the best business decision I think we've, we've made thus far, frankly. And it's a great group. We're having great luck with it. That's great. Well, one thing that is heartening for me is you're helping lots of people get hired by into the right jobs, the right companies, which I think is a great, you know, you're doing well by doing good in that regard. So I think that's something you should be proud of. Another question I wanted to ask is, look into your crystal ball for us. You guys are generating amazing amounts of data through your system. And we're talking about the hiring process, which historically has not been a data-rich kind of a process, right? Has not been augmented by data in the way that you could possibly help continue to augment it. And I'm curious how you think, give us your crystal ball view, where you take in this company and how do you think you can help change the way that data is used to ensure that people end up in the right jobs and you know, companies really benefit as a result. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we learned really quickly was exactly what you said. The, the lack of data is a big reason why decision-making has frankly been not optimized. And through no fault of people, they're handcuffed because they can't get access to the information they really need. And, and one of the things that was so amazing to us was this whole idea of the quality of a hire and how are companies actually measuring the quality of the hires they make and who owns that KPI in an organization. And what we learned pretty quickly is they're not measuring the quality of the hire that they make. Right. And of course, no one owns that KPI within the company, and which was an amazing thing. And, and again, this is this is just endemic of this part of the process that's been built over the years. Talent acquisition and recruiting departments are historically measured on time to fill a role yep. and potentially the cost to fill a role. Once we kind of realized that fully, we decided to go all in on this quality of hire piece, which is how do you actually connect pre-hire data with post-hire data, business outcomes to help companies ultimately get visibility into the data they need to make sure that the hire is going to ultimately drive the type of business outcomes that they're seeking. So we're doing some really cool things on that. I think we've hit a phase now where we have enough data in our system, you know, from the number of candidates that have come through the system and all the other stuff that we get along with that, where we can actually start to let the machines do their work and let the ML kick in and some of that stuff start to happen. And mm. it's just really, really cool. So that's the big investment for us going next is really close the loop, connect the pre-hire data with business outcomes, and ultimately try to build sort of an on-demand analytics suite that complements cross-check that helps companies get their hands wrapped around the quality of the hires they're making, not just the speed at which they're making those hires. That's a really compelling vision and, you know, I think has the opportunity to, to take cross-check as a company and this market to the next level. And in a nutshell, that's definitely why we why we invested and uh, we're looking forward to the journey. We know it's going to be a long one, but that's what makes it fun. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat. Not that you're, I know you're on the hot seat with your day job, given that we're involved and all your other investors, we have high hopes for the company, but let's put you on the hot seat now to ask you a couple of quick questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. What's one piece of advice, knowing what you know now, one piece of advice you'd give to a younger Mike starting out as an entrepreneur? 
I would say fail faster <laughs> with, with the ER in parentheses. So for sure, fail fast, but fail faster is probably, probably an important one. That's a good one. Yeah. Learn from your mistakes as quickly as you can and move on. I'll take that to mean. Okay. We talked about the squirrel take care of itself earlier, but what's another book or article you, you like to recommend to founders? Yeah, for first-time founders, right? I, I remember the art of the start is one that I've never gotten away from, and I give that to you know anybody we hire, kind of frankly coming out of college or what have you. It's just an, an oldie and a goodie. I'll tell you a really tactical one that I have carry around like a Bible more recently. I just I hadn't run a SaaS company before, and I, I just you always want to be learning and getting smarter. But Bruce Cleveland wrote a, a great little book, Traversing the Traction Gap. That is just, it's literally just like a how-to, but helps you really put into great specific detail what you should expect on your journey and what KPIs to connect with those different milestones to help you make sure you're on the right path. So that's one that I actually great recommend. Yeah, I haven't seen Bruce in a long time, but I'm going to check that one out. Okay, last question. Tell us about Defy Ventures and why you're involved with it. Yeah, really cool. And I love it how all these things start to connect. But Defy is a great group that basically has a mission to help train the incarcerated so they're prepared for business opportunities when they get out of prison. It's really, really cool. We do a whole whole thing where we mentor these individuals. They have like a Shark Tank-like finale to the season where they do their business pitches and one gets selected and they get recognized for that and that sort of thing. But it really is kind of part and parcel to my own conviction around the idea of how do we help more people get jobs? How do we level the playing field for job seekers? And so we, we literally are going into the prisons with Defy and we are working hand to hand with folks that are incarcerated, but it is oddly connected to Crosscheck. In a way that, you know, as you know, we, we, we also do a bunch of work at Crosscheck to support second chance hiring and help folks that need a second opportunity and how they can use human intelligence to get that second opportunity. So it really connects both for me personally, but also connects professionally in a, in a really cool way. So I would encourage folks to check it out and uh, enroll and get, become a part of it if, if they have the time and the interest. Good on you for doing that. And uh, it's an exciting part of the, the company's mission to help people of all shapes and sizes really find careers that are fulfilling and, and uh, well-matched to their abilities and outlook. So really, I want to say, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very proud that GGV is, is a supporter and investor in your company. Really looking forward to the future and really appreciate you sharing you know, what life is like at the earlier stages. People are going to love hearing about your challenges, and uh, I think they're going to ring true to lots of the folks who listen in. So once again, thanks. Appreciate it. And uh, best of luck to you. And uh, looking forward to doing maybe another one of these episodes a few years down the line after we, so we can talk about exactly. you know, the new challenges <laughs> once, once the company's a lot bigger. Yeah. Put me in the growth section. <laughs> That's coming. That's coming. Can't come soon enough. Thanks again, Mike. All right. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. 
The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>